Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Professor Weiss, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. It's a true honor to have you here. Thank you for having me, Matt. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now and excited to be part of them. Thanks so much. That means a ton. You are our first academic uh, on the podcast. So I guess, you know, it's fair to say class is officially in session now. I've been waiting to make that joke for about a month. So I'm hoping some (laughs) people appreciate it. (laughs) That's great. Uh, I don't know if that's a plus for the VC community, but I'll, uh, I'll I'll take it anyway. So thanks, Matt. So mention that you're an academic. I think we'd love to hear about your background a little bit. It's fascinating, and you truly have sort of a unique perspective on VC, uh, given how much time I think you've spent in the academic world. And I know there's, at some point, uh, a shoe salesman role that played a, you know a great effect in your your development. So we need to hear, I think, the whole tapestry of the history of Professor Weiss. Okay, well, I'll, uh, I might maybe I'll start with that, which is like I'm kind of from a, I'm literally from a family of shoe salesmen and shoe salespeople. Where like my great grandfather back in a country called Galicia in Europe owned a shoe store. Uh, my grandfather, you know, moved they moved to Chicago and he opened he had he ended up with two shoe stores. My father owned a small chain of shoe stores in Chicago called Tico Feminine Footwear. Uh, I have two brothers. My brothers and I all worked at a chain of shoe stores in Chicago called Churn and Shoes to make money on the side while we were in high school. So like it just goes back forever. And I think the the way it relates to the work that I do in the venture world is like my father was, you know, like my father was an entrepreneur. I mean, he was a real entrepreneur. He started a chain of shoe stores from nothing, you know, built it from one shoe store up to seven shoe stores. And he used to is kind of hurt a lot by the recessions at the time, which hurts retail. And so he ended up back down at one shoe store after he ended up at seven. And so, you know, part of what I feel like when I'm helping a bit, you know, I mean, VCs don't really do the work, but like helping a bit with entrepreneurs is like, I'm kind of like helping the member, my father's passed away, but like helping the members of my father to be, uh, to be, to be as successful as possible. So, so that's kind of the history, at least on the shoe sales person side. Um, you know, went to college, um, worked as an accountant briefly um, for a variety of reasons, decided to get a PhD in accounting. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm the only accounting academic who is a professor who's, you know, now does venture capital and investing work. Uh, but I uh, got my PhD at, at Chicago. Matt's great that you're an MBA, you know, an MBA student at our school. And then I went to work at Columbia Business School in New York in 1999 when the tech bubble was in its bloom. And there were, and, you know, frankly, a lot of my MBA students were going off, like literally ditching their second year of business school to go off and work at tech companies. And so there was a professor there named Matt Rhodescroft, um, who was a finance professor and I was an accounting professor. And the two of us started doing um, startup investing on the side of our day jobs. And we like to joke that we would, you know, we'd like work. And then we'd like take all of our, you know, whatever hard earned money that we had. And we had a, a very expensive hobby called startup investing. And we did, on the, we did that on the side for a while. And then, you know, eventually we formed a group that was, that's akin to a pledge fund. And we got some, you know, friends and family involved in doing some of the startup investing with us. And that, that's kind of my 
the beginning of my venture career. And what I realized was I did, I did really like the academic world and really liked the teaching part of it, mostly. Um, loved working with uh, students, MBA students and others. But I really just fell in love with working with entrepreneurs, um, the excitement and the energy of people with new ideas, um, people pitching to me all day on, you know, what is the world going to look like in three or five years, um, learning about new industries. And so, you know, I just have been very, very fortunate that I've been able to do both over time, um, spend some of my time teaching MBA students like you, Matt, and some of my time uh, working with entrepreneurs and investing in startups. So, so, and so I, you know, that, that's right. So I moved, I was in New York for a bunch of years. I moved back to Chicago to teach at the University of Chicago. There was an angel group called Hyde Park Angels that had started right after um, Grubhub and Braintree went through the new venture challenge business competition at the University of Chicago. And so for a variety of reasons, there was some alumni that got together to form an angel group. The school was open to that, an angel group that was affiliated with the school. And so I was asked to step in to help run the group and really be like a liaison to the group in the early years, um, helped with the group for the first few years, and then branched off uh, and started doing investing on my own and formed um, Hyde Park Venture Partners with, with Guy Turner, who I know you've already had on the podcast. Big, shoe, well, big, for- shoes, to fill, big shoes to fill since I know you've already had Guy. Yeah, you know, it's the follow-up act. It's the encore everyone was clamoring for after we had Guy on. People were just saying, you got to get Professor Weiss. And I, I can attest to all listeners, the VC Lab course, which Professor Weiss teaches, is worth the price of admission to Booth on its own. So I can't recommend it enough. I can't recommend Booth enough if you're interested in the space. Had to give Booth the quick plug there. I'm but- flattered. I think it's probably because you like listening to Jason Heltzer, who I know you also <laughs> have on the podcast. <laughs> no. so, uh but I'll uh, consider myself the the uh, the player the the also ran. So no, it's uh, it's it truly is an excellent course, and it is. I, I don't know how many other business schools out there you can get two practicing, you know, managing partners at two of the most preeminent funds uh, in that given geography to sort of come in every single week and t- teach you all the tricks of the trade. You know, one thing I'm curious about, just based on your background, based on how much of a focus you've had on accounting for your entire career. Did you, when you started making angel investments, did you ever think maybe you wanted to move later stage where there was a little bit more data to support these investments that you were making? There's a little bit more accounting being done because you are very focused at the early stage. And it's just a funny sort of, to me, it's a funny pairing, an, you know, an accounting PhD and early stage startups. How did, you, how did that sort of, you know, how did that develop over time for you? Yeah, you know, I think it's a it's a very insightful question about me, Matt, because it, it you know, and even when I started doing startup investing, it, there was a little bit of a disconnect. We're like, you know, accounting professor, academic, you know, there's a lot of rigor that's typically involved in a lot of the stuff that I do, and then you have early stage investing where, like, you know, in many cases, we're investing at you know pre-launch stages, and so um, you know, I think, um, I, you know, I don't know, I just I really love early stage investing. Um, I think now I've been fortunate because some of the companies I'm involved in have gotten to be much later stage. And so I'm experiencing more of the later stages and that's a pretty interesting stage as well. Uh, But there's nothing, I think there's nothing really like being involved really towards the beginning or or at the beginning. We, We don't, you know, VCs don't do the work. We don't do any of the real work, but like even like an intro here or like introducing someone to you know, someone who becomes an early key employee and the impact that can have on people's lives. You know, it just feels like when the companies are much larger, um, it's just harder to have as big of an impact. And so I think I've, I've definitely enjoyed 
um, the impact and really getting involved pretty, pretty early. And we'll talk about, you mentioned some of your companies moving on to, to later stages. Oh boy, is that true? We've got a few companies that hopefully we'll get to that have reached unicorn status from, from Hyde Park's portfolio very recently. But a few more questions on you know your, your background, I guess, is have you found over time, what has it been like balancing you know being both a professor and a venture capital investor? Have the roles over time sort of informed the other have you taken some of your your time you spend in the classroom around young sort of students who are looking to found companies and will you ever make investments you know from those relationships or how have the two sort of merged over time yeah i mean it's a it's a great question i think the way that there's been overlap to be honest with you is mostly through the my you know the investing that i've done with startups and actually bringing that into the classroom a bit and so you know i teach i've been co-teaching the venture capital lab class uh, but I also teach a class called Accounting for Entrepreneurs. Um, we, we, you know, the sexy part of the topic is Accounting for Entrepreneurs from Startup to IPO. Um, and I think, um, you know, by making these startup investments and being involved in a lot of these companies, I think it does give me not just anecdotes, but a lot of context for the kinds of things that it's helpful for students to know as they're going off to start companies or they're going off to be part of entrepreneurial teams. And so I think it's mostly been that way. I mean, I think here and there, every once in a while, there's certainly great um, teams that are coming out of the University of Chicago. Um, to be honest with you, just to uh, try to help avoid conflicts, I have you know, other folks at our, you know, our firm um, work with, the, you know, if they're still students, kind of work with directly with those students. but. Um, but, it, but I think I also, you know, in some ways, like now have, have had the context over time of watching these companies grow and thinking about the kinds of things that a CF, really a CFO would think about at various points in time or a founding team, you know, follow on financings, um, you know, thinking about things like um, governance, you know, how do you, you know, founders like, you know, you want them, really, it's like the classic, like, well, I want to become rich and I want to maintain control. And so I think I have much more context for how to do that over time and what to think about. And um, and then, you know, I think I also am able to bring some real world examples of things that I've seen um, around the frameworks that we use when, when we teach the classes at Booth. So, um, you know, I think certainly some of my academic knowledge and, you know, I meet great students, you know, here and there, what's really happened for me at Booth is, you know, because I've been involved in some of these pretty, you know, few interesting companies that have gotten to be much larger, um, here and there when students have been graduating, I've been able to introduce them to some companies that I'm involved in. Um, you know, I, I, I probably have three or four of those a year at this point where like some students are graduating or they've graduated. And then I'm like, oh, like your background would be really good for this specific company. So we have one company I'm involved in um, that's a rec recently came out of stealth mode called Fairax, and it's a new futures exchange. The um, chief of staff was a student that I met at Booth, chief of staff for the CEO, and the VP finance, Tony Grief. Tom Rafferty is the chief of staff, and Tony Grief is uh, is now the CFO who recently graduated Booth. I introduced him as he, kind of as he was graduating. So I've done a bunch of those things at Ship Bob and elsewhere. And so um, I think that's the way that there's been a little, a little bit of an overlap. So. 
I, I feel like we are convincing so many people to go to Booth and take your class right now just for all the uh, potential uh, down-the-road incentives there might be, hopefully to land at a job at one of the you know fastest-growing startups in uh, Hyde Park's portfolio. I, I'm curious about, do you see other academics you know, moving into VC? Is this something that you've seen, at least from the business school level? Uh, do you hear of this happening often? I don't know. You know, I mean, I think it, for me, it was a little bit more happenstance, to be honest with you, Matt. My, like, my grand world plan, which I didn't mention earlier, was to go work at the, I, the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank. Like, that was kind of my grand plan out of undergrad, part of the reason I went to get a PhD. And so, um, you know, I think most academics are driven by like curiosity, knowing more about the world. Um, I think I think VC is a, is just there's different things that drive people who are VCs, but here and there occasionally you see people in the academic world going off to start companies, particularly if they're in computer science or, or elsewhere. So, you know, here and there you'll see people getting PhDs, and especially you know in the Bay Area or elsewhere, like come out of school in biotech and, and they start a company. Um, I don't know that. Um, I'm creating a, a path for folks who, you know, go to get a PhD so you can become a VC. You know, that's not, not what I, not generally what I tell my students. So. <laughs> the Professor Weiss movement. I could see it. I don't know. I could see a, 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 you know, a bunch of PhDs following your footsteps. I'd love to focus on Hyde Park's origin. You know, we, we had Guy Turner on the show and he gave us a good lay of the land, I think, of the investment mandate behind Hyde Park and what you all look for in your investments. But I'd love to hear from your perspective, you know, how the fund sort of originated and how it's grown over the past, you know, almost 10 years. You know, how did, the, how did we start? Well, I was doing all the startup investing in New York with a, with a pledge fund. Um, it was called RK Ventures and it was just a partner and I. And then when I moved, I'm originally from the Chicago area, I moved back here um, and it was great. It was pretty, I would say a little bit early in the tech scene in Chicago. Like when I showed up, um, you know, Braintree, Braintree was around um, and, it, you know, it came through the New Venture Challenge about, like, I think the year that I showed up and then like the year after I showed up is when Grubhub went through the New Venture Challenge at the University of Chicago. I love doing the startup investing and you don't really want to do it on your own for a variety of reasons, it's better to do it in a, in a partnership structure to have at least one other person. And so when I met Guy, you know, I like to say he was like my star student turned teacher because I was like, oh, this, he's just, he was, he was amazing. And I just loved working with him. And I was like, we, you know, I know he went off to work at BCG for a year, but I'm like, Hey, we got to raise a fund because like, you got to come work with me. Um, and he's like, well, that's great. But like, how are you going to pay me? I also say that there's certainly an opportunity because there isn't, you know, there wasn't as much and still is not as much early stage capital um, in the Chicago area and in the Midwest as there is in the coast or in New York. So, you know, we certainly saw the opportunity, but, you know, I think some of, some of it, to be honest with you, was happenstance. And I think for us at Hyde, you know, on the Hyde Park Venture Partner side, at least, um, you know, I think that remains true to today. You know, there's still, there's some capital at the earliest stages, you know, the pre-seed and seed in Chicago throughout the Midwest, but, you know, the returns on average have been very, very high. And I think the reason the, you know, the financial returns have been high is because there's not as, you know, there's not as much capital as you, you probably want. And so I think that, um, I think the opportunity remains. So, and we, you know, as Guy had said on the, your prior podcast, we do early stage, you know, tech investing primarily in the Midwest. And by the Midwest, we include, you know, what you traditionally think of as the Midwest plus Toronto, Canada. Um, I like to joke, which now will be 
forever remembered that like, you know, we include Toronto as part of the Midwest, but don't tell the Canadians that because that would be <laughs> upsetting to them. Um, I don't think I've ever said that when I was being recorded before. Uh, but I think they, hopefully they appreciate it. And I think um, we've, you know, we've really enjoyed um, our, the investments that we've made in Toronto. It's really, really great market um, in some ways similar to uh, Chicago. So, yeah, I, I mean, aside from Toronto, um, have, were there times over the past, you know, 10 years where you two felt pressure to move outside of the mid continent and maybe take on more geographies or have you just been even further emboldened by all of sort of the success you've had in the Midwest and, and you've really decided to double down. I'm just curious if there was any, ever, any ever times where you thought about moving to different parts of the country for your investments. Um, I mean, I think, you know, you, you, you know, every firm and VC has to play to their advantages. And I think, um, you know, being close to companies and geographically close is the, you know, is an advantage. And so like, it's really hard to say, you know, take some of the coast, like I'm not going to find the best, even if I, you know, even if I happen to think I'm, I'm a halfway decent investor, um, really, really hard for me to get into the really best opportunities in the Bay area or New York or Boston or even Austin. Um, you know, I think you need to really develop, um, you need to develop, you know, if you're physically in a market, you have an advantage or occasionally if you've made some investments in a, in a region already, you may have an advantage. And so I think there definitely has been internal discussion at our firm about, you know, expanding beyond the geographies to, we had someone, well, someone on our team moved to Austin, Texas for a while. And so we had a brief discussion about that, but you know, if anything, like, I think, we've generally been reined in of like, you know, we want to be investing where we have an advantage now in a COVID world, you know, where everything, a lot of things are virtual. Um, some of that advantage has gone away, to be honest with you, where, you know, you have coastal VCs, people in the Bay area just sitting in their background doing zoom all day. And so we definitely see more coastal funds investing earlier than they did before. Uh, but I think we, you know, still being close to entrepreneurs gives us um, a little bit more of an advantage. So, you know, the other thing that gives us, I think Guy might have talked about this is, you know, there are some there are some themes that we tend to invest under and think areas where the Midwest has an advantage or at least not a disadvantage. And so we've made a lot of logistics related investments, as an example, um, you know, for Kite Ship Bob, you know, two companies that have done really well, a company called RoadSync. Um, We've made some manufacturing tech investments, a company called Fast Radius that just announced a SPAC that's, you know, a, a $1.4 billion SPAC. Um, we've made some farm tech investments like farm logs, like things where, you know, the Midwest tends to have an advantage or at least not a disadvantage. Yeah, I, I, that's actually a question that I, I was curious about in the first place is, you know, Chicago specifically, but I guess the broad Midwest, um, you hit a few of them, but would you say that, you know, manufacturing logistics are, you know, at this point, clear cut that's a industry that the Midwest or at least Chicago is a leader in. Um, and it's an area where you think dollars are really going to flow and concentrate in this geography. Yeah. I, I think it's fair to say that about logistics. Um, I mean, we're not the only part of the country that is great at logistics and has a, you know, kind of deep seated roots like, you know, Atlanta would as well, maybe Indianapolis, which is in our geo. Um, and there certainly are some great, you know, logistics related companies that have sprung up in, you know, in the Bay Area and, and elsewhere, you know, the convoys of the world, the flex ports of the world. Uh, but I think there are some pretty exciting local companies in logistics and a 
a lot of logistics related DNA so that even if you see like European or Israeli companies that are logistics related, when they open a US office, like pretty frequently they're like, we'll, we'll open it in Chicago. So a company called Bring has done that. There's some other, there's just a lot of, a lot of local talent that knows it well. I think for a variety of reasons, one is like we're in the center of the country. And so we've always been a little bit, a little bit of a logistics hub, but there's also a little bit of a quirk of history where um, the trucking brokerage business was really started in Chicago by a guy named Paul Loeb, who started a company called American Backhaulers. And so there's just a lot of DNA that, that came out of um, the starting of that company, which was, you know, kind of 30, 40 years ago around the, when trucking was deregulated. Um, and then, you know, and then of course, you know, big airlines that are here in Chicago, like, like United. So. I switching gears a little bit. Uh, wow. I just had a trucking pun right there and I'd even set that up. That's uh, <laughs> wow. That just flew right off the tongue. That's great. Oh, I, um, I, I, I love that. I love that. It's, yeah, you're not taking a hole for yourself here. So <laughs> switching gears. Um, a topic we talked a ton about in our class, obviously is the due diligence process as a VC investor. I'm curious, given your extensive background in accounting, are has startup accounting changed in any way in recent years, or as has more capital has sort of flowed into the system? You know, one in particular topic me and Guy talked about was uh, car. Uh, you know, that type of uh, metric being used more and more. Are there are there other types of changes you've seen in recent years at the earliest of stages? Um. I mean, it's a very good question. Um, you know, there are, I think, you know, when you talk about some of these metrics, it's really about KPIs, um, key performance indicators, and, and, and in some ways less so about, you know, the accounting function and direct accounting information. So there's certainly been involvement, some evolution of the way that startups end up using key performance indicators. Guy might have talked about how, you know, I think we, we all talk about annualized recurring revenue, right? And there's different meaning to that. And that, you know, that's evolved a bit where companies use like committed annualized recurring revenue um, or booked, you know, there's some companies that talk about booked recurring revenue, uh, but booked may not be implemented recurring revenue. And so a lot of, some of these measures could be squishy. I mean, I think these are, they're all important metrics. And I think, you know, the other things that have been around for a while are things like, you know, cost of customer acquisition, lifetime value of a customer. Um, and there have been, I would say a bunch of advancements, not pure accounting related, but more like, you know, how to look at those metrics, how to think about them over time, you know, even measures of, you know, virality, those kinds of things. So I don't, um, you know, it's not as much accounting related as it's like, I would say metrics related. For you, was it challenging though in the beginning, you know, when you first started making investments in early stage companies and maybe even, you know, once you joined Hyde Park Angels, once you, you know, um, started at Hyde Park Venture Partners, what was the learning curve for you like personally when, you know, you have this background again, probably of looking at three statement, you know, financial statements, um, having sort of fully fleshed out financials to go off of. What was that like for you to get, you know, back into the very early stages when there's so much less data and it's a little bit more ambiguous. Well, actually a lot more ambiguous. How, how did that develop for you? Yeah. I mean, I think the craziest thing for me, to be honest with you, is like the way you set valuations in the early stage world is just so devoid of real financial metrics. So like, you know, some of the companies we invest in are, you know, they're pre-launch, 
Like, how do you value a company that's pre-launch? Um, you know, people would just come up with these values, $3 million, $5 million, $10 million. You know, this company has, it's not launched. There's nothing like, if you came to me with an idea, Matt, or let's say I came to you with an idea and I was like, hey, Matt, I've got this great idea. Like, I want you to buy the idea for me. Like, would you, do you think you'd ever pay like 10 million? you know, $5 million or $10 million for like an idea I gave you? No. Um, so like the, you know, the academic world, business school world, the late stage investing world is a world that's about just kind of cash flows. It's about, you know, multiples and comparables of public companies. Um, it's about, let's figure out, you know, look at some comparable exits and figure out what this company's likely to be. And then you get all the way to the, you know, like you kind of work back over time to the really earliest stage and you're like, where, you know, where do these even come from? And there are some methods that people have used, but mostly, you know, what it boils down to is it is generally the idea that, well, VCs have an idea in their mind of what could the exit look like and why. And thinking backwards through time, we talked about this in the VC lab class of like, what are the, you know, what are, what's the capital that has to go into the business? in order for the exit to look like X and then working backwards to what the early stage valuation needs to be. And so I would say that's the, that would be the trickiest thing. And I would say what makes it even more difficult is that the later an investor typically invests, when they invest early, they may attribute some like fundamental value to the company, but they also attribute option value to be able to invest more in that company. And so here and there, you'll see like, let's say it's a, a later stage investor invests in a series A or a seed round and they, they put a valuation in and you're like, that valuation is crazy. I've never seen, you know, it's a, you know, a series A, it's $20 million round at an $80 million pre-money valuation, which, you know, frankly has gotten, you know, common enough in the world that we live in right now. We're like, you could look at, I could look at that and say, that's crazy because five years ago in the Bay Area, people talked about the standard series A, which was like eight on 20, right? That was kind of the standard series A years ago. And now maybe the standard series A is like 15 on 50, right? And you see like 20 on 80, which if you asked any VC five years ago, they would have thought that's the most insane thing you can imagine. But, um, you know, you've probably read about, you know, outcomes now we've realized are much larger than we thought they would be in the tech world. But also when you get later investors investing earlier, you know, they're, um, they attribute fundamental value and some option value. And so they're like, oh, you know, like SoftBank's invested in some of our companies. They've got, you know, billions and billions of dollars to invest. And they're like, okay, well, you know, I'm happy to invest, you know, 70, $80 million in ship Bob now, um, and I'll value it X. And then like the next round comes like, oh, now I want to put 200 million in. And so, you know, they're like, well, I want to get involved in a company. It's a great company. And so, you know, there's a lot, of, there could be a lot of squishiness with these valuations. So, sorry, it was a, it was a very, very long-winded answer, Matt. But, um, no. but hopefully that gives you some sense of the the, the way that I think about metrics in, in, the, in the VC world. So, No, and I think that that valuation step up uh, year after year, almost that compounding step up, is is that ubiquitous? Are, have you seen it in your 
geographic areas, not just in Silicon Valley? Do you think it really has trickled down to the Midwest, for example, which historically was always viewed as sort of a conservative place? You needed tractions even at the earliest stages to, to you know, warrant any kind of, uh, you know, valuation. But but I think, you know, over time, what would be your sort of sense of how have things sort of progressed even in the mid-continent on that front? Yeah, I mean, valuations have definitely gone up over time everywhere, you know, in the Bay Area, in our markets. Um, I think, you know, every time it seems like there's going to be a step back in that, um, at least over the last, you know, really decade now, um, there may be a very brief step back, but it's like the valuations take, they can take a long time to go down in the private markets and they're, they're generally just going, they're generally just going up in the private markets. So, um, you know, I don't know. I think mostly, honestly, it's about finding really good companies and finding really good founding teams. And if, you know, if you, if you're lucky enough to invest in some companies that could be, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of exit value, um, you know, you know, in some cases, billion plus, you know, I mean, some of the, it's not that the valuations don't matter, but like investing in a, you know, what years ago might've been a $3 million valuation and then became a $5 million valuation at the seed round. And maybe occasionally now it could be eight to 10 million, you know, as long as you have a few companies that is really big outcomes, you know, it turns out to be okay. Um, the, the real, I think the real challenge is how do you, making that decision and choosing good companies, because, you know, if you end up in great companies, you're going to, you know, it's, it, you're going to have fun and you're going to make a lot of money in this profession. And if there aren't a lot of, you know, if you're not in a lot, any good companies, it's, it's, it's tough. So. And we, we hit on valuations a little bit there, but uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you guys obviously have a national network. Um, and so I'm sure you talk to VCs and there's also VCs based in Chicago who invest on the coast and they, you know, they're geo agnostic. So I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of the differences between investing in startups in the Midwest versus investing in startups, you know, on the coast, generally speaking, do, you know, the startups here bootstrap longer? Are there challenges that they may face, you know, being located in Chicago? Just curious about your perspective on that over the past 10 years. Yeah, I mean, look at, you know, the cost of capital fundamentally is lower in the Bay Area and lower in New York and Boston than it is in Chicago for startups. Like it's it's just much easier to raise capital um, in the Bay Area. That said, for, for, for companies and founders that are just starting out, unless you're an experienced founder, it's always hard to raise capital. And so, you know, I would say, um, you know, what if you think about the Midwest, because there's not as many capital sources around, there's still enough, the cost of capital is higher and we need to think about that at every stage. Um, and then, you know, I think the other thing that, you know, we I've noticed over time is like, it is harder to achieve hyper growth for companies based in the Midwest than probably the Bay Area or New York, because when those companies, you know, we, we've got these, you know, a bunch of these companies now that are at these like stages where they are hyper growth or should be hyper growth. And what happens in the Bay Area or, and elsewhere is like maybe you can plug in very specialized talent at those stages and you can plug it in very quickly and you can like, you know, switch people out and get, you know, demand gen B2B marketing for someone who's done SMB marketing, so on and so forth. Maybe, you know, you post a job rack and maybe you get like 15 people who have done, you know, business to business marketing, uh, demand gen marketing. Um, for small and medium-sized businesses. Um, and in Chicago, you post that rack and it's like 
too, right? So that's what you have to get creative about. Um, and I think you do see, you know, good founders, good founding teams being able to like repurpose people. And now in a COVID world where a lot more things are virtual, it's a little easier to get people who are not in Chicago um, to, to be willing to like work virtually, um, especially with the tools now. And so I think you put that all together. And I think, I think fundamentally it is, it is a little bit harder to build billion dollar businesses um, in the Midwest than it would be in the Bay Area. Um, but I think it's not, it, you know, it is very achievable. You know, we see that time and time again now. Um, and so um, I, I'm not sure, I don't have anything else to say about it, but I think that's hopefully a, a, a good explanation. So, No, I think that's that's so, so insightful. And I think, you know, that echoes something that I think a lot of VCs in the show has said, have said, um, and, and another comment or I guess hypothesis that I've taken away from, you know, these conversations with VCs based in Chicago is that in mid in the Midwest in Chicago, there is sort of a, a lack of, you know, those true pre-revenue, um, you know, pre-seed funds here in Chicago that will come in at the earliest of stages when it might just be, you know, an idea and a deck and an entrepreneur. And on the flip side, there's a little bit of a dearth of you know, post series B or even series B funds to take you to that sort of growth equity stage. Would you, would you agree with me on that? Or do you think, you know, there, there are funds that are starting to proliferate that might actually, you know, fill that need in the future? Yeah. I mean, I think those are two very different stages. So I'll talk about them each in turn and like talk about pre-revenue companies. I think there are a, a good group of like, you know, seed, you know, seed pre-seed funds in, in the Midwest and particularly in Chicago now, many of which will often invest at the pre-launch stage. So like for our fund that most people would consider like slightly later than seed, you know, we've made at least three of the major investments we made over the last um, 12 months have been into pre-launch companies. Um, you know, one is a company I mentioned earlier, which is called Fairax, which is a new futures exchange. That company was in, I mean, it was in stealth mode for a year and a half. Um, it had to get, it's a, it had to get regulatory approval by the CFTC. Um, and so we invested, I mean, well before launch, you know, it had to go through, a, I mean, really three funding rounds before it launched. That's pretty unusual. Uh, but recently, um, another investment we made is a company called Audit Sites. Um, it's actually not based in Chicago, but it's based, you know, based in our geos. They're pre-launch. Um, we invested in a company called Frank, um, started them, started by Logan LaHive, who's an experienced entrepreneur. Um, I think if you're an experienced entrepreneur, you can get money at the at the pre-launch stage in Chicago. Um, we also invested in a company called Cove Markets, um, that is a it was a pre-launch crypt, you know crypto trading tool. And so I think you can get money at that stage in Chicago, but you know in some ways, like the more experienced you are as the founder, the better. Uh, but there are sources now you know chicago early stage growth you know m25 us you know chicago event a bunch of different groups that here and there network ventures and others like we will all um sometimes do pre-launch companies and i think the more active the national markets are in our geos frankly the more likely it is like we're going to want to go earlier so i think there's some of that um you know but at the same time like you know we could always use more money at the at the pre-launch stage um, you know, I think the series B and later is a little bit of it is a very different category because that seems to be like a historical, um, critique of the Chicago market 
where like there isn't a lot of like local series B and beyond capital. Um, you know, there's a group called Jump Capital, great group that does a lot of investing, in, you know, series A, series B. Um, there's a group called Valor that is, you know, it's based here in Chicago, but has an office in the Bay Area, an office in New York, and is known really well for SpaceX and Tesla and many, many other, you know, great, um, great tech companies. Um, but they, and they do more national investing than local investing. But really, when you get to the Series B and beyond, and in some cases, even for the Series A, um, you are in a national market. Um, and so, like, you know, let's say you look at our fund, like, we are not going to be an advantage. We're going to be at a disadvantage trying to invest in a Series B company, um, even some, you know, series, solid Series A companies, uh, because there are national funds that have brand names that have invested in very specific spaces that are always going to have an advantage. And so, you know, why start investing late, you know, even like you raised a fund to do it, like you're probably going to get beat out consistently by, by coastal, coastal funds. And so, and, you know, you see that a little bit, I mean, you have um, a, a Midwest focused fund like drive capital um, that, you know, in some ways, I mean, I think over time they haven't needed to do this, but for a while I thought, Oh, you know, they had raised, pretty large funds for the Midwest. And then we saw them like seemingly, at least at the time, seemed to be, well, they have to pay way up for anything that looks like it might be the best uh, Midwest company uh, because they have to figure out how to win it. And so they were like bidding more than coastal funds might bid. Like ex post, I think, you know, maybe it looked like they were bidding more, but actually like, you know, all the valuations people paid in, it seemed like they might've been too low. But um, but I think I think that's the problem with, these later stage rounds um, where it is a national market and, you know, who wants to be competing against, you know, Sequoia and Lightspeed and, you know, and Benchmark and Emergence and Andreessen Horowitz and others. Like we're not going to win. We're not going to win that game. Now, what we can do is here and there provide, you know, the feet on the ground and the local support for those companies that some of those funds may be interested in here and there. Uh, but it also depends on the entrepreneurs and, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs don't even, you know, support, like what they, they don't need anything. So do you think that's important for a VC, uh, such as yourselves, you know, who, who's focused on a particular part of the country based in Chicago? Do you think it's important that you guys develop really strong relationships with those series B and later sort of national funds, because then the founders that are coming to pitch you and that you're maybe potentially trying to win an allocation in, you, you have sort of those built-in networks. You can say, you know, we see you five years down the line needing to talk to XYZ fund in New York or San Fran. We can make that introduction. Is that, is that almost table stakes today for, for VCs based here in Chicago? Yeah, I mean, that what you're describing, Matt, is what I always used to say and think, which is like, and, you know, it, I mean, it's played out a bit for us. Where we have had a bunch of follow-on capital for some, you know, some of our better companies. And I do like, you know, I was just in the Bay Area two weeks ago, and that trip, I don't meet with companies out there. I meet with venture funds and, you know, particularly VCs to like pitch my companies. But I actually think VCs don't really like getting introduced to companies by other VCs anyways. Um, they want to be introduced by other founders and they want to have a thesis. And so like, in some ways, like maybe I thought we were really being helpful. Um, and you know, we are to some extent because I think it gives people a little extra comfort, but I think, um, it's just such a natural national market at this point, you know, companies announce a financing, you know, as soon as it's announced and it's in pitch book, like every, you know, every Tom, Dick, Harry, Sally, Sue, 
VC around the country that wants to be looking for a company in the space is going to know about it. And so I don't know, you know, on the margin, it helps. Um, and literally, like I was out in the Bay Area two weeks ago, specifically telling people about, you know, some of our better stories. Uh, but I think um, the best companies that come out of the Midwest, you know, Coastal Funds find them. You know, I mean, I can give you the stories about our better companies and how, like, you know, I made some intros, you know, the, the, some of those turn into term sheets. But like for all of those companies, there were other thesis oriented investors that were national investors that just just found the company anyway. So um, it's a long way of saying, like, I, I don't know how much help it is anymore. I think the way we can be helpful here and there is like understanding the dynamics of, you know, follow on financing rounds and how to orient yourself for those um knowing how to you know talking to our entrepreneurs about getting the right introductions which may or may not be from us um you know i think the near in the current market where financings are happening so quickly for good companies you know the importance of a narrative the importance of certain things and you know i think some of that coaching can be helpful uh but i i think the, the connections themselves are, are a little less useful than they used to be to be honest with you so no offense to my coastal brother and I, you know and and you know there are lots of exceptions we're like you know there's one of our company one of our portfolio companies you know that had that hadn't really been public about what they were doing like there is a specific vc on the coast may or may not listen to this podcast who was like hey you know what great company do you have to be working on now and i'm like oh i gotta tell you about this company and it turned out like he did really like that company and he did engage a lot and i think you know would it could have been interested in funding it and so those things do happen, uh, but they're just they're just not as needed as they as they have been. So. And for anyone who may or may not follow you on Twitter, apparently you experienced your first ever earthquake on this trip to the <laughs> Bay Area uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, just real quick, what was that like? <laughs> Matt, thank you. So someone's someone's following me on Twitter, Matt. That would be you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I was in. Um, I was actually in the office of, of a venture firm called Foundation Capital with a former student of mine, Joanne Chen, who's an amazing VC. And we're sitting there and she's like, she looks up and, and I guess the, you know, the lights are shaking and she's like, you know, there's, there's an earthquake. And I'm like, oh, a, a what? And we're in San Francisco. She's like, yeah, look at they're shaking. I look up, I'm like, oh, and then it like goes on for a bit. And we were, and then like people in the office were like, well, we, I guess they have to get out of the building. So people stood up and they're getting ready to get out of the building. And I'm like, is it okay? How big is it? She looks up how big it was. And my, you know, my gut reaction was like, I hope everyone's okay. I hope it's not that bad. Um, and like, it was kind of cool for me. It's horrible to say, never been through an earthquake. Hopefully no one got hurt. But I'm like never been. I never happened to be in San Francisco when an earthquake was going on, um, and so um, again, hope no one was hurt. But I was like, kind of cool for me. So, um, what an experience! No, that's uh, and it always makes it makes for a great good. It makes for a good podcast story at the end of the day. So you know, I yeah. think uh, uh, you know here. It wasn't. It, it, so it wasn't scary for me because it didn't get that bad. Um, and I never, you know, I think if I had been through any bad earthquakes in my life, it would have been, I mean, honestly, it would have been like post-traumatic stress disorder. So I feel bad, yeah. not only for people who like, I don't think anyone was hurt in this earthquake, but also like people who had been through bad earthquakes. Cause then you're like, uh, but, um, you know, hopefully, you know, hopefully there will be no bad earthquakes, but you know, we just, we, we, we've 
we never experience them in the Midwest in a way that's right. noticeable. So we, we, we do not, we have our fair share of tornadoes and, uh, you know, now it seems like we have our fair share of unicorns here in the Midwest and, uh, two of which that I need to mention, I'd be remiss if I did not during our time, um, ship Bob and G2, uh, both companies, uh, that, um, you know, you all at Hyde Park have been a part of the journey from the very beginning. So first off, congratulations. And, you know, I'd love to ask, what do you think were the keys now looking back, you know, that they've reached unicorn status? What do you think were the keys to to those companies um, success over the years or, or that led to such, you know, scale that they've been able to achieve? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, it's all about the founding team. It's all about their vision. It's all about their focus. So, you know, we got involved in G2. Um, it was called G2 Crowd at the time. The founding team um, had started a company called Big Machines, which was like a historical Chicago tech success. Um, and they, um, you know, Big Machines was like enterprise software sold to companies. And they, they kind of had developed this hatred for Gartner because, um, you know, they were a small company and they were like, well, our software is better than these big companies, but, um, you know, Gartner is telling everyone that these big company software is better. And so they had developed this like hatred. And so they went to start G2, um, after they left big machines and, you know, they started, it was called G2 crowd. And the idea was they like, they want the voice of their customer in it to be out there for other prospective customers. And so G2 is like reviews, software reviews. And their pitch was, you know, I, I go to buy a toaster. I could get like 150 reviews on Amazon. I want to go to a restaurant. I look at Open Table or Talk, one of our companies, or something else. I get like, you know, 200 reviews before I go to a restaurant. But I buy a, you know, $500,000 a year CRM system. And I, and I get the, rep- I have to get a report from like an analyst at Gartner who has even used the software before. Like, I want to know, like, I want to know companies like mine and what their experience is. And so that was their vision. And I think it was like, it felt like, um, you know, you know, probability low that they could achieve it. But the fact that it was a team that had worked together before, they were very passionate. They had a success under their belt. We're like, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're happy to take that plunge. And so, you know, we got involved in the, in the seed round um, it was us and one other local venture fund. And, you know, look, we've been so pleased, you know, it just, it did just get unicorn status. And I think we've been very pleased. My, my colleague, um, and a partner at our fund, Tim Kopp is on the board of, of, um, of G2. And that, that is a company that now is a, you know, it's definitely has a national reputation in the VC world because people use it for their due diligence as well. So, um, you know, so that is G2, you know, um, you know, the two other companies lo- locally in Chicago that we got involved in at the really early stages that are unicorn or near unicorn status, one is called ShipBob, which is e-commerce fulfillment. And um, I mean, look, you, you have no idea if, if, I mean, when you're in getting involved, you have no idea if companies are going to be unicorn status, right? It's like, are they going to be worth a billion dollars? But there, I think you had like really, really passionate founders um, who had worked together before. And I think we... Um, you know, we did get involved, like by venture standards, it was very early. You know, we led the first institutional round, um, which we called the series A, but really was a seed round. Um, but because the company at the time, it's a lot of service, it provides e-commerce fulfillment. Um, the same thing, you know, your Amazon package shows up. What does ShipBob do? Like they, you know, uh, physically wrap 
and you know put in a box they've got a warehouse they put it in a box they send it off to you um the same way that amazon would and and so i think the reason we were able to get involved early there um was it was mostly a service and just a little bit of software and that allowed a group like ours which was local to get involved when they were i think they were at, actually had a run rate revenue of about three million but it's all like shipping revenue and not so interesting to you know coastal vcs who are mostly looking for software companies and so really really passionate founders who grew up together actually in india both moved here one moved to go to purdue one moved here to go to university of illinois um had one of them had some experience in logistics and i think we you know we've been very just a really really great passionate founding team that is um that really has become the leader in the space and i think they're hoping to be you know there's shopify there's a company called stripe which is payments uh in e-commerce there's a companies like a firm and then i think we're hoping that people think you know ship bob if you're doing e-commerce fulfillment and, and it's on um it's it's on track to be that um, so we're hoping for big things. And then, you know, we have another, these are Chicago based ones. We have another Chicago company called four kites, um, which is kind of effectively unicorn status as well, which is, um, which provides e-commerce, um, it's sorry, not e-commerce, it's a supply chain visibility software. And they've done really, really well. Founder Matt Ellen Jickel, who came from the space and had worked at a company called, uh, I2 that was bought by JDA software and, and, and was at Oracle. Um, unfortunately, went to Kellogg instead of Booth, but uh, but Matt was really really, and we got there. We got involved pre-revenue. It really really great founding story, and we just believed believed in the vision. So, I, I mean, I think it's it's ten unicorns now in 2021 that Chicago has minted. It's 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 been pretty incredible to watch. And I think in our remaining time, you know, I would just love to hear, you know, broadly speaking, you know, zooming out for a bit. It, do you think there's anything else Chicago can continue to do to improve as a tech ecosystem? You know, what do you want to continue to see uh, over the years uh, that Chicago as an ecosystem can do? Um, it's a great question. I mean, I think my hope is, you know, really, I think about like how does Chicago get on the tech map? Um, and it does that through, frankly, through bigger and bigger successes. Um, you know, five to ten billion dollar tech successes, like the you know really like the Grubhubs of the world, like the Paylocities of the world. Um, you know, we have a really good crop of next gen companies like that. Companies like you know at the ones in our portfolio, G two, ShipBob, Four Kites, um, Avant, and Amount that are also in our portfolio. Um, you know, a company called Fast Radius that's in our portfolio, and then you know big big local ones like Active Campaigns. And relativity that are like multi-billion-dollar private tech companies, um, and a bunch of other, you know, M1 Finance and Cameo and a bunch of others. I think, you know, historically Chicago's had a lot of companies where the founders, I think, you know, for a variety of reasons, sold out when the companies were worth about a billion dollars. So you have, you know, um, clever a company called CleverSafe that was sold to um, IBM for 1.4 billion. You have a company called. Um, uh, uh, Field Glass that was sold to SAP for a billion. You have a recent one called Tasty Trade that was sold for a billion. A lot of founders, you know, it's it's really, it's mostly their decision. They're like, well, this company, it's great. It's gotten to be as large as I would have could imagine for. Uh, but I think for for Chicago to really be on the map, we need you know that next level. And I think fortunately, you you have a, a newer crop of founders that are aiming, you know, that do seem to be aiming for these larger outcomes. And I think, you know, maybe that's also, they're able to take a little bit of money off the table and, um, 
And so it's a little easier for them to do that. But we have a bunch of this next group. And I think, you know, the way we can help mostly is just like funding more and more companies at the seed and early stage because you just, you know, you never know in some ways which companies are going to end up being that billion or multi-billion dollar company. And so the more the more capital there, the better. Um, you know, I think really good entrepreneurs, you know, frankly, will figure it out. Um, and so the more we can get in the stable and the easier it is for them to get capital at the early stages, I think the better, the better off um, we will be. So, yeah, no, I think that's, that, that is, uh, it's sort of that hyper scale, hyper growth playbook that Silicon Valley has really nailed over the last 50 years that, you know, it's, it's easy to argue that Chicago is just in the early innings of, of hopefully seeing something similar. Um, Professor Weiss, this has been amazing. And last question, you know, would love to hear about any sort of thought leaders that you follow, resources that you try and stay on top of, uh, you know, as you as you sort of um, look out at the landscape of all of these sort of uh, the blog posts, the newsletters, the podcast. Would love to hear if you have any favorites. Oh, uh, great. Well, I mean, I love your podcast, Matt. And so I've been I've been enjoying them. And I think it's great. Um, I do like not not as a thought leader, but I, I do like um you know, the 20 minute VC, Harry Stebbings, just because I get like, you know, I get a flavor of lots of different VCs. And that's what I like really hearing because everyone kind of mostly gets to the crux of what their shtick is. Um, I didn't really fully get to my shtick here, but you know, everyone's got their shtick. Um, you know, I listen to a A16Z podcast because I love those kind of feel like, it, you know, you learn what the next, you know, what the next gen is going to be like. And then you know, I guess I'm a little bit old fashioned and I mostly still read the, you know, kind of the, the historical VC greats like the Fred Wilson's of the world, the Brad Feld's of the world, you know, Mark Suster's of the world. Um, you know, I love um, there's a there's a really, really great crop of up and coming VCs. And I just like list, reading like VCs that people have. Um, and, you know, one person that I've learned a lot from is a guy named Ajay Agarwal who's on the board with me at both ShipBob and Four Kites and, you know, one of the VCs that I've learned, really, really learned a lot from over time. And so he's written a bunch of stuff that I, that I, that I followed as well. He's not as prolific, but um, anyways, it gives you a little bit of a flavor of the, of the stuff that I, uh, that I found. So. Beautiful. We'll check that out and add all those to the show notes. Um, really appreciate you coming on, Professor Weiss. This is fantastic. We're going to have to have you on again sometime during the school year next year, maybe a in-person live recording from the classroom, something, oh, uh, something like that. Yeah, live okay. audience, maybe. <laughs> excellent. excellent. Well, well, thank you so much for inviting me on, Matt. Really, really appreciate it. Love what you're doing with these podcasts and these you know, video casts in Chicago. I think it's great to get the word out there about what we're doing and um, and, uh, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully it was useful for, for some folks. So. Yep. Amazing. Professor, thank you. Take care. Okay. Sounds good. Take care, man. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.